Well, um, just as you're probably getting going in your conversations, I'm going to stop you as usual. So, um, just give you a few moments to finish the thought you're on. Um, this exercise is not so that you understand exactly how the particular passage that you looked at works, but it's so that we get the idea of what it is that the writer is doing so that we can begin to learn the skill for ourselves. Now, if there was lots of time, I would love to have big discussions about each of those three wonderful passages, but there isn't lots of time. So I'm going to give you um, a brief perspective on how I think um, he's working in each case, and then finish by generalising with things that I hope we can take away. Um, in chapter 2, um, verses 10 to 18, would one of you lot read that for the people that haven't had it read? Paul, would you read the bit you've been looking at? Loudly. Bring in many sons to glory, whose fitting the job of whom and through the name of the should make the altar of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call the brothers. He says, I will declare your names, my brothers, in the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in you. And again, he says, here am I, and the children God has given you. Since the children have flesh and blood, you two shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him in the holds of power. That is the devil. And free those who have all their lives are holding stable by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that know about Abraham's descendants. For this reason he has to be made by his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are innocent. Thank you very much indeed. But look, first of all, what's presented is Jesus. <laughs> and that's, um, that's enough to start with. Because as we think to help each other out of difficulty or into growth, we often don't present Jesus. But more than that, you can tell me the gospel a million ways and it will often bounce straight off me. He's presenting one facet of who Jesus is. Maybe more than one, but one that comes through very strongly is Jesus the human being. Flesh and blood like his brothers. More than human being, a brother. Somebody who um, has a relationship with us. More than that, somebody who is even tempted like us. What's being presented is Jesus' humanity. There'll be a reason for that. Um, reading the whole of the letter, I'm convinced that the reason for that is that faith to these Hebrews had become about mystic things, about ceremony, and not about real being a human being in the day-to-day. -day. You'll see that as you read through the letter. They would never have, look, this is the important point, they would never have said that. If you'd asked one of the Hebrews um, who Jesus was, they would have given you the right theology. It was given away in their behaviour. And they were starting to, the letter implies, go back to ceremonial religion. But they would never, I suspect, have said that they'd failing to trust Jesus. It is exactly the same with your small group. It is exactly the same with you and me. The likelihood is, if we're asked, we'll give the right answer, but our behaviour gives away a different functional belief. And he knew that their functional belief was that 
Jesus, like all of religion, was a mystic thing. And so they'd stop, to think, stop thinking of Jesus as a person, as a brother, as somebody who walked, who had flesh and blood, who was tempted. Consequently, he became useless to them when temptation bit. So what does he present? He presents Jesus, the human being. And that really is a thought process that I want you to begin to think about as you spot um, what's going on in your own heart first and then in the hearts of the people that you're ministering to, whether it's ministering, encouraging people out of bad patterns or into better ones. Let's see if the pattern holds. Um, would um, Chris read out um, chapter 4, 12 to uh, 16? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom he must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Thank you very much. Um, again, many, many things we could say about this, and I'll, I'll stop after this, we'll leave the third one hanging in the air. But um, what's presented here, two things side by side, a God who sees everything, and not only the things that are visible to us, but the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. But beside that is a God who can be approached, not just approached, but approached in confidence. Um, the, the direct instructions are to hold firmly to the faith we profess and to approach the throne of grace with confidence when in need. Um, why would you present um, Jesus as the one who makes that possible? What do you think is the functional disbelief that's going on in the people that he's writing to? Well, it's given away again in other parts of the book, but it's a familiar one. It's shame. Shame is what it is. Sin's deceitfulness that causes the heart to turn away from the living God. The very thing that Adam did when he hid in the garden. These people are getting it wrong. When they're getting it wrong, they feel they cannot turn to God. And if you think about what that means... That means that the times they do turn to God is because they think they're getting it right. Is that the gospel? So what's presented to them is a God who does not miss what's going on. He sees everything. He sees the attitude of the heart. But he is approachable. And he's approachable because we have Jesus. They're turning away and they're encouraged because of the very heart of the gospel instead to recognise their need and to approach the same thing is happening as was happening before. The writer knows that they would never say, I believe I can be acceptable to God because I've done good stuff. They would never say that, but their behaviour gives it away. He understands the heart, and so he presents Jesus in a way that speaks to it. What's going on here is he sees a dysfunctional relationship with the living God, and he presents the living God in a way that they can begin to functionally relate to. And that, brothers and sisters, is our ministry, mainly to ourselves, but also uh, within your small groups and within the church family. Um, and so I'm going to pray for us all and then hand over. God, our Father, 
we are grateful that you have been willing to have anything to do with us at all. Uh, when we look at the kind of problems of the heart that are going on, just in two short passages we can recognise ourselves. We recognise that in shame we can turn away from you all too often when your gospel invites us to come close. We recognise that we frequently don't trust you but look for our security in things that we can touch and feel. Thank you that Jesus is the answer to every one of those problems of the heart. And would you please help us, Father, recognising the dysfunctional relationship that we have with you and that our small group members have with you, whether things seem to be going all right or not all right, always to be about the business of repairing that relationship. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be like those in the back of the Land Rover, encouraging each other on as if there's a race to run, uh, but pointing not to speculative things, rather to what has already been achieved, and to the person of Jesus Christ whom we can approach. So, um, can you all hear me? Um, so we're going to look a bit more now about what that, all, that might all look like now for each of us in our small groups. Um, so I'm going to try and do it in sort of three brief sections. First of all, I want us to um, perhaps do a bit of a review of some of the things we've looked at before by looking specifically about this idea of how do we view the situations that are coming to, into our lives and how does the Bible help us with that? Then I want to look at um, a specific example of that um, with the focus on the whole issue of self-esteem. Um, and then I'm going to end with um, a real-life example of that, a sort of walked-through example of uh, one lady's life who I've been meeting up with. Um, so you can perhaps just begin to get a feel of what that might actually look like uh, in someone's life. So first, um, sorry about the slightly naff thing there, but um, I, couldn't, I couldn't find anything else at half past ten last night that summarised something's wrong. So um, the point is something's wrong. Um, we all know it. Um, things are not as they are meant to be. We see it in the lives of the members of our small groups and we see it in our own lives. Each of your negative emotions registers this fact something's wrong. This term you may well hear the best sermons on Matthew. You may even lead the best Bible studies you've ever led, but it's not going to stop hard things happening to those around us or to us ourselves. And in every situation that's going to come at us, we are by design what I call meaning makers and sun seekers. By meaning makers, I mean that we, we interpret what's going on around us. We attach meaning and we attribute cause. We're designed to do it. And how we interpret the world around us affects how we respond. And we're what I call sun seekers because we have an innate instinct for avoiding pain. We want to fix things and we want things to feel better. So, for example, take a moment to think of the last thing that went wrong for you. It may have happened this morning. It may have happened yesterday. A comment, a criticism, something that took you by surprise. You'll remember it because there'll be a negative emotion attached to it. Anger, fear, guilt, despair. Has everyone thought of something? <laughs> um, and then I want you to think about that situation in your mind and think, how did you go about fixing it? How did you go about making it feel better? Maybe you did something very godly. But if you're anything like me, you'll have resorted to something like denial, 
escapism, you'll have become defensive, self-righteous, you'll have argued back, you'll have begun on a frenzy of activity to make whatever's gone wrong right again. If you've got an obvious example, why not just take a moment round your table, if you're feeling brave, to share what it was. What was this thing? I'll give you a minute, not long. Perhaps just one person on each table. Okay. Um, I don't want to preempt preempt any laying bare of ourselves amongst one another in our circles of trust. But um, uh, let's come back. Um, the point is that when we're faced with something, when we're faced with something, however tiny, that just doesn't feel right, we go about desperately trying to make it okay. And we do that with each other as well, when we see each other struggling. We rush into this mode of either changing ourselves, the situation, or other people. And we tend to do it all without reference to the God who's made us and whose world we live in. Or is that just me? You've heard the Bible referred to as the maker's instructions. Well, it's true. It must be given to us, in part at least, to give us the one true worldview, God's view, his interpretation of everything. We read it partly to have our own worldview corrected. It allows us to see the world as God sees it. So what a treasure this is going to be, to gather around this with your small group this term, to remind each other what's really going on. And this should be our job as small group leaders. I've put this diagram, I haven't put it up there, but it's in your handout. Um, if, um, if you think that somehow sermons, Bible studies, coming to church, what happens here on Sundays and Tuesday nights is over here, and then you've got what we call my real life over here, then you get what we called last time the gospel gap. <coughs> Um, No, our job is to help folks get big T truth. That is, um, God's view of things as revealed in his word and little T truth. That is, the reality of my day-to-day life. To get them on the table together, thrashing it out, doing business. And it's an exciting thing to do. And there's not some dark art to this. Because our God, in his wisdom, has written his word exactly to perfectly fit our needs. At the very beginning, we get told, yes, you're right, something is wrong. And then the whole thread of scripture is about fixing what's wrong, restoring what's broken. Think of all those technical words, redemption, reconciliation, sanctification, justification, forgiveness. They're all about fixing what's broken. um, Last time, we introduced you to these eight questions. Here's a reminder, because I didn't think you'd all have them etched on your memories. Um, We gave them to you as a tool to just begin to start thinking about your own or anyone else's struggles. And we gave gave them to you partly because they're a really helpful framework Um, for getting us to think biblically. But they're also really good because they force us to think beyond just questions one and two, beyond situation and response. You see, we live in a culture that tends to attribute final causality in some part of a person's situation. We tend to answer the big why 
W-H-Y, a person is, the way they are, in their circumstances. And depending on which theory you choose, that might be all sorts of things. It might be their genetics. It might be their background. It might be their peer group. It could be a physiological weakness. It could be their temperament, a traumatic event in the past, or just plain cause and effect. When something bad happens, who can blame someone for responding negatively? And that's not to say that none of these things are important, that they don't, oopsie, sorry, that they don't play any part at all, but they are not the big why. So just to help you see this, I want you to just think about the kinds of prayer requests that come about as you meet together as a small group. How many of your prayer requests, when you get together, are simply asking God to change a situation or circumstances in a person's life? Health, a job, a husband, a nicer husband, a resumption of normal life, whatever that is, a baby, a relationship, It's not wrong to ask for these things, but if we leave it there, our God, over time, will become to seem pretty impotent to us. Because funnily enough, he tends not to give us just what we think we need. So can you relate to this in your small group? So take a moment again to talk to your group about the kinds of prayer requests that come around on the table, that are a bit like this, focusing in on situations. Okay, to make my point, this is something a bit odd here, which I'm going to have to move away from the microscope for, uh, microphone, so I've got a cup of tea. This is, this is you, okay? This is a cup of tea, right? This is you. Um, and this is the world. The world comes at you, knocking you, doing some hard stuff. It's not very pleasant. Oh, look, there's tea on the floor. My question is, why is there tea on the floor? Well, the obvious answer is, I'm bashing the cup, and so there's tea on the floor. But perhaps the more... Um, oh, Jim's just going to clear up. <laughs> perhaps the more um, biblical answer... <laughs> this is good, isn't it? pray for Yeah, I did, I prayed for that. That's gone well. Um, perhaps the deeper, more biblical answer is, there's tea on the floor because there's tea in the cup. So my point is, wow, it's very deep. No, but my point is um, that the situation reveals who we are. It reveals what's on the inside. That was the point of all of that. It forces us from question two into question three to start to think, what is it that actually rules me? What do I really love? What do I really want? And I tell you that just understanding that will enable you to go deeper than any secular theory of change, motivation, or help. Our culture, you see, tends to view the heart as passive, empty, needy, waiting to be filled up. But the Bible says the complete opposite. It says our hearts are active, full, always choosing, they're a cauldron of desires, a factory of idols. And it's biblical, this cup of tea idea, 
It comes straight from our God in his word. Um, I'll get Tom to read this out for us. Thanks, Tom. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with man, which neither you nor your fathers have known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So here we see a deliberate, intentional God allowing his people to suffer in order to reveal what's in their hearts. And his purpose is to cause them to come to him, to turn back. So do we bear this big picture in mind when we or others are struggling? Do we often just aim too low, simply to try to make things feel better? Comfort, relief, restoration of function, or dare I say it, self-sufficiency. The first three of those are great things, great things to offer one another. But what does God say should be our aim? Shouldn't we align ourselves with his view of things and see him revealing our hearts and calling us to trust him? His aim is to make us like Jesus. So can we trust him to be doing that in the hard times? He doesn't want us ever to be self-sufficient but to cry out from our need in trust and dependence. He wants to pull us out of ourselves and to be radically decentered so that he becomes the new hero of each of our stories. And as we see our stories fit into his big story of fixing what's broken. How can our prayer request be better? Have a think about that. Can we begin in our small groups, not just to ask God to change the situation, but to change us in the situation? so that we can look to him in faith and others in love and so bring him glory. Um, So now in this next section, we're going to try and do just this, connecting big T truths with little T truths in one particular area of all of our situations. And this is the area of human differences. Um, I've chosen this because it affects all of us. Um, It doesn't just highlight a few people around the room. And because um, a sort of culture-bound view of this seems to lurk behind lots of other more complex issues like depression, anxiety, and certainly all those sort of self-esteem issues. Um, So human differences, we notice the differences. Some of us notice them more than others. Um, Fortunately, the Bible does that too. The Bible seems to make distinctions between people. It distinguishes between the big people and the little people, the powerful and the powerless, the rich, the poor, the slaves and the masters, the attractive and the unattractive, the well and the sick, the clever and the slow to learn, the weak and the strong, the full and the hungry. But what it seems to do is to place everyone on a spectrum that ranges from one extreme to the other. And we do it too in our contemporary world. We do it with trendiness. That's certainly a spectrum, looking around the room. Um, (laughs) Sense of humour. There's a spectrum. Um, Organisation and forward planning at one end of the spectrum, Honor Wadsley. And the more spontaneous, flexible, I like to think of it as, approach to life at the other end of the spectrum. Ways of processing, 
ways of processing that range from the witty lateral thinker to the more rigid concrete thinker and so on. But the value of where you are on that spectrum, on any of these spectrums, depends on the situation. So if I'm having a dinner party, I want the witty lateral thinker there, please. But if I've got to do my tax return, no thanks. I'll have the concrete rigid thinker there for that. Thank you very much. Um, So you see what I'm saying? The value depends on the situation. But think about the differences that are present that you can't avoid noticing in your small group. You'll have different ages, difference in marital status, differences in background, economic status, achievement, successes, all sorts of things. But take some time to think about what those differences are. We're all at different places on the spectrum, but what do we do with this? What's our response? Because as we've seen from those eight questions, how we respond will reveal something about what's in our hearts. And I would suggest that the human heart seems to have a fallen genius for taking what is simply laid out as a spectrum, in God's view, and turning it vertical. It becomes a ladder. We start to exert a value judgment on the differences, where to be at the top becomes good, and to be at the bottom becomes bad. So if, for instance, in your heart, what you value is braininess, then you begin to place yourselves and others higher or lower on the ladder. It becomes the place where you find your identity and you begin to compare yourselves to others. Jot down one thing that has become a ladder in your mind. Do that mentally, probably. (laughs) But when we do that, we're forgetting that our sovereign God ordains all these differences, that he gives gifts to one and not to another as he sees fit. Over to Tom. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> he is God, he judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. So, um, imagine, well, let's use the side of the gymnasium for this whole wall. This wall is, I don't know, 15 foot high. Imagine that at the top of this wall is a state of absolute control satisfaction and personal fulfilment. We can spend our lives busily erecting eight-foot ladders for ourselves or for others all around the room. We can strive to move up those ladders and then we can compare ourselves to others on them. We get pleasure out of knowing that others are on a lower rung than us. We feel threatened when they move up the ladder and we can get a tragic sense of inadequacy and despair if we seem to be stuck on one of the lower rungs. But just suppose for a moment you get to the top of all your ladders. Where have you actually got? Well, you've got eight foot up a 15 foot wall. The trouble is there's always going to be someone better than you and your list of successes and achievements, well, it doesn't come with you when you die. You've actually got nowhere. You've got eight foot up a 15 foot wall. Nowhere that counts, anyway. You can be rich, beautiful, strong, sporty, clever, funny and gifted. But none of it determines real value or stigma in the eyes of the one who gets last say. So you can begin to see why the whole issue of low self-esteem has come about. What is this thing? 
Well, it comes about when a person's view of themselves, being shaped by both what they value and what those around them value, in their view, they're somehow lacking. They feel worthless and useless. And our culture answers them back and says, yes, you suffer from low self-esteem. And there it is. It's that passive view of the heart again. It's that victim. And our culture says that the aim in helping someone is what? High self-esteem. You get it by deciding not to pay attention to what others think of you anymore. It's about what you think of you. Let's see what you are good at. And then let's set some manageable, doable goals to get you moving on up in your own estimation. We pour affirmation on. It sounds ridiculous when I'm saying like this, but we can Christianise this too. Look at how valuable you really are, we can say to someone. Jesus values you. He thinks you're worth dying for. But it doesn't work. Yeah, I'm still ugly. I'm still fat, thin, stupid, lonely, can't get a job, a husband, a degree, the approval of that particular group of friends. It doesn't cut the mustard. So what, what we can say is, whatever else is going on in low self-esteem, here is someone living in terms of a ladder to nowhere and locating themselves on one of the bottom rungs. They've begun to measure themselves against a standard that is fundamentally false. And we'll all have done this at some point in our own lives. And there will be, some, there will be someone like this in your small group. So how are you going to help? Without mentioning names... Perhaps just describe this person around your table. Begin to work out who this is. Okay. Um, again, sorry to stop for short those conversations. Um, I'm hoping that on some tables you were in fact talking about yourselves because um, this is a pretty universal problem. But anyway, there we go. And we've talked about, when Jim was talking about, this idea that um, when we think about joining scripture to real life, we need to think carefully about how we do that. It's the same gospel, but we can be a bit more skilled about how we actually shape what we're going to say into the situations before us. So with this idea of ladders, um, how might we begin to bring God's word to bear on that? Well, God's word, as we know, in part, comes to flatten the ladders. He knows that this is our tendency to put what's horizontal and supposed to be horizontal to turn it vertical. God knows that we do that, and he speaks. He asks us again and again, who made the eyes? Who actually arranges things and distributes the gifts as he sees fit? There are all sorts of places we could go, passages like Ephesians 6, and Colossians 3, show God to be absolutely no respecter of persons. In him there is no partiality. He doesn't care if you're an Oxford Don or a Vin Man. He doesn't care if you're gorgeous or grossly disfigured, the vicar or a brand new Christian. The ladders are laid flat. In fact, we could say that our God is the great overturner of the ladders and actually reverses them. It's there in the Beatitudes. Each of the Gospels are packed with accounts of this Jesus coming to seek out those who are low on every human ladder, the poor, the sick, the outsider. Jesus' mission seems to be to bottom-rungers, 
To paraphrase 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says to a self-confident bunch of Christians, not many of you were actually at the top of any of your self-erected ladders, but God, who is rich in mercy, chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. Here's a verse that shows us what God actually values. Yeah. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. Let the one who boasts, boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. So with God, it's knowledge of him that seems to trump every other human difference. Whatever places you high on any of your ladders is no cause for boasting. It's given to you, so you can be thankful. And whatever you lack doesn't lower us in his eyes, so it's no cause for shame. The big question seems to be whose eyes matter to us? Whose gaze counts? Others or mine? We're more concerned about how others think about us or how we rate ourselves than what God thinks. And this is a worship problem. When we look to these ladders, we're turning away from God and his truth. And the very word esteem means to regard highly. It's a worship word. We're not aiming for high or low self-worship. There is only one who deserves our worship, And in his eyes, we are all declared to be at the bottom of every single ladder anyway. In his searching gaze, we are the poor, blind, naked, miserable, sick, slaves. We need a saviour. We don't need to feel better about ourselves, like the sun seekers that I mentioned at the start. What we need is an accurate self-knowledge that lets us see ourselves as God sees us and turn to him for help. It's as if we look in the mirror, but our sights are lifted from ourselves to our saviour standing behind us. And that avoids the two common extremes of either being the relentless activist that never stops to look inside, but is always just do, 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 let's get on, uh, or the sort of paralysed navel-gazer who's permanently turning in on themselves and distressed about what they see inside. We have a saviour that calls us out of ourselves. We need help. And what help comes? The gospel comes and it sets up one true ladder. It's a ladder that goes all the way up, not just this 16-foot wall. It goes all the way up to the very presence of God. It's the only ladder that actually goes somewhere. At the top of this ladder, this one true ladder, is this impossible standard that I would love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and might, and that I would be able to love others as myself, utterly decentered from myself. Imagine being able to meet someone for the first time and not worry about what they think of me, to simply love them without fear or comparison. Imagine being able to see someone being better at something than me and to simply be thankful with no edge of resentment or jealousy. It's an impossible standard, and yet, in fact, it's the only ladder that is doable. It's the only standard that's possible. Why? Because of Christ. Christ who came down to meet us in our need. Christ whose life on earth was one downward trajectory. As Philippians 2 speaks of him, he made himself nothing. 
He wasn't good-looking. He never went to school. He was poor. But he loved God, and he loved us perfectly. His death and resurrection cover us in his righteousness, and the impossible ladder is simply given away. And more than that, because it's him that gets us there, it's a dead cert. Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who began a good work in us will continue, and we'll see it through to the end. And with this ladder, everything on it counts. Each time we take one step further in trusting him over ourselves, relating to him from our need, fearing him instead of others, it gets jotted down. He sees it, he weighs it up, and is utterly delighted. These tiny moments might seem insignificant, but they follow us. They follow us into eternity. On every other ladder you will lose, but on this one we win because of Christ. So in terms of human differences, this is what we're aiming for. (laughs) So we're not asking you to be trained counsellors or to take on some weird theory of change. We can't give you ten steps out of depression. No, our prayer for you and your small group is that you will continue to point each other to a real relationship with a real person, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us the only one who can actually fix what's wrong. Um, I think it's over to you now for sort of questions. Except that, of course, being the crosses, we've gone on for far too long. So we've got about five minutes instead of 30 minutes for questions. So there you go. It's great from our point of view. Um, Mrs. Cudmore. Sorry struggling with and recognising that 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 is their world view at the moment. You know, you can't just slap um, it's about tailoring the truth of the gospel in a way so it's um, rather than just sort of spraying a hose over their life you actually get out your water pistol you know, you actually, it's the same truth it's the same water I'm spraying, it is the true gospel, but I'm thinking creatively about how to actually make it connect with where they're at So, you know, you might not talk about the gospel in terms of cups of tea, gays, ladders, all the things, the weird things we've mentioned this morning. But it's the same Jesus that you want to be bringing in and you will, yeah, begin to think about how that relates to the particular struggle. So it'd be different in different things. I mean, that that basically is all we've said, really. (laughs) You know, all, all of you would have been capable of articulating the gospel to somebody who wanted to hear it. The two things that I hope over the whole year we've pointed out are that you may have to look beyond what people say to understand what's actually happening at the level of their heart. And that you can present Jesus and the good news to them in a way that addresses the heart that's tailored to that particular problem. And actually, when you look at Jesus' meetings with people in the Gospels, he does exactly that. 
encourage you to go and look at his meetings with people where he, he has the advantage of being able to see inside the human heart, of course, but he'll often trigger a response with a question that reveals the heart and then he'll answer. It's um, amazing when you think of it that way. How can we have more <coughs> confidence to do that when we've got all our own ladders and trying to sort out our own problems? If you find out, we'll tell you. <laughs> but um, uh, having said that, we, we've tried to drop in. Uh, let me tell you very honestly, we, we um, embarked on you know, looking into these things uh, when Andrew encouraged us to do, very aware of our own limitations and still very aware of them. But the course did something extremely helpful and that I would like very much to commend to you and that we've tried to drop in as we've gone through, which I don't think you have anything to give away until you've started to see the gospel do this sort of work in your own life. Now, of course, we all see it to some extent, but the idea is to be moving it from an occasional rarity by the grace of God to something we habitually do. And I don't know about you, but let's think about evangelism, for example. I am a rubbish evangelist when I'm not walking very closely with Jesus. When I love him, I become a reasonably good evangelist because I have something I want to give away. The same that's true of evangelism to convert people is is the same as presenting the gospel to see people grow. When it's happening to me, um, I have something to give away. I think that's part of the answer. what you mean, this whole, it, the prayer time sort of gets concertina to the end and even if you sort of start with that shopping list, people do begin to sort of think oh actually this might be the chance to mention that and something sort of spills out but everybody's got to go and yeah, it's all bit. Uh, one, I don't know, one strategy that I've perhaps thought of before is maybe splitting people up a bit into twos or threes to talk with particular relation to what you've studied um, even perhaps perhaps starting the session when you get together with, okay, what's everyone just facing this week? What are those shopping list kind of prayer requests? Because they're things that are on our minds, aren't they? Let's get it all out on the table before we start. Just go round, everybody say, what's the thing on your mind? Okay, let's just now do our Bible study, and then perhaps at the end of the study, get together in twos or threes and think, how has what we've looked at made any impact, had any impact on that thing that you mentioned at the beginning? Um, if you do it in twos and threes, what happens is that then it doesn't matter how much time you've got to do that because you've got a week to commit to praying for each other with that. And then when you meet up next week, before you start the same thing again, you can say to each other, oh, you know, I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about that thing this week. How's it got? How did you manage with that situation? How were you in that situation? I don't know. It's a, it's a small thing, but it just means you're thinking a bit more strategically about it, trying to get to go a bit deeper. But one tip. Roger. One response that you might get is to 
Obviously, a significant um, element of the culture of your study will depend on you, know, you as leaders and what you value. And we know that the gospel uh, makes us all equal. <laughs> so there is no room for a faith ladder. And if it's there, that's, that's not as it should be. Um, and you could hardly study one New Testament letter without that being a significant learning point as the gospel is articulated, the great leveller of the gospel. And then the other thing, if you think about Ephesians 4, um, where it speaks of God giving everybody a gift, but the gift turns out to be used for everybody else. Now, Andrew's encouraged us over this cycle to look for the gifts of people in our small group and encourage them to deploy them. I think that might go some way. I can think of, without mentioning names, a couple of small groups I've been in, where people who would regard themselves at the bottom of the faith ladder have found something that they can do for the good of the group and it's, it's caused them to grow um, in a way that doesn't, isn't about climbing a ladder of faith and therefore isn't, isn't unconstructive. Is that helpful? I think also we can um, misrepresent the gospel, can't we, in terms of what it is because of the culture that we're in where you know, we're reasonably well-educated people that can become, like you say, another ladder. Um, and I don't know how, I, I guess it's just being deliberate in your mind. Isn't it? What is this? What, what does God value? What does he say? It's actually <coughs> knowledge of him based on how he's revealed himself. And he hasn't made that rocket science. He's made that a simple act of faith. And um, it's, it's, it's a whole group culture, isn't it? It's changing the culture to say, you know, I might be able to put together a really good reasoned exposition of a passage, but if he's not speaking to me and I haven't changed or done anything, then actually in God's economy I am lower down the ladder. <laughs> Um, or maybe you don't think about it as a ladder at all perhaps an elevator, Gareth said to me why do you make it a lift when I talk to him about it because someone else takes us up the ladder it's not me that gets me any higher up on the ladder that actually counts it is another um, I've had the hairy eyeball from Mr Cudmore up behind the coffee bar which means that um, you know, now's the end of our time for open questions I do apologise, it's been very short um, will you please catch Sonia and I at any other time in a more one-to-one context because we like talking about this. Um, so I'm not going to pray again. We've finished. We'll eat and drink and make merry and then Ben will give us 45 minutes of nothing. <laughs>